News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, though, we're also going to talk about exercise and the importance of exercise. It's been a little hard to do that, especially if you like going outside with the way the weather has been. So that's why a lot of people have been going to the gym but they have been ordered to close, right? Public health orders said that they must remain closed to curb the spread of the Omicron variant of a variant of COVID-19. But you know what? People say, well, show us the proof. Owners of some of these facilities say, is it actually spreading in our gyms, in our yoga studios, in our dance studios? Well, that's something that Dr. Bonnie Henry addressed yesterday. And when we have a lot of transmission in our community, we have repeatedly seen the gyms become amplifiers. And we've had a number of examples of that that we put out information on. Okay, so she said, I guess, you know what, to sum it all up for her perspective, it is better safe than sorry. Doesn't do a lot, though, for the owners of some of these facilities. Joining us now is Kevin Reynolds, who's the owner of Contenders Boxing Studio. Kevin, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Simi. So are you guys closed right now? So we're, we were closed on December 23rd, and then we got open because uh, the health order allows sports to be open, and we're a, we're a boxing facility, so we are allowed to be open at 50% capacity right now. Okay, so what, what, was the, what did you hear from customers, from people who come to your gym when you did have to close, Kevin? Like, what, what do people need to do uh, to stay healthy these days? I mean, the physical activity is very important, and that's obviously a big one at the gym. But I think the more important one is really the mental health is just the stress relief, the the depression and all that that's happening with people that you need an outlet to, to get out and make yourself feel better. And closing the gyms has been terrible for a lot of people. And what have you heard from people like over the pandemic and what's it been like for your business? Uh, well, for the business, it's been terrible. <laughs> Obviously, being being having so many orders that have changed from shut down to open to no high intensity exercise to distancing to all, all the things that we've gone through, it's been really hard on a lot of people, especially the owners. I can imagine. How do you how do you do that though? Like, how do you adapt to those public health orders so quickly? Is it just constantly changing? It is constantly changing. Yeah, I mean, last November was the worst. I think it changed four or five times in a period of 30 days. But I mean, I guess you just have to get up every day and, and try to face another another day and adjust when you have to adjust. So how do you mitigate that though, Kevin? Because like, obviously there is a health concern there, right? About people in a con- like confined space like that and breathing heavily and, and that spread of, of Omicron. So how do, you, how do you mitigate that? What do you do? I mean, I think what we did originally is we, a, we have the HEP 14 or 13 filters in, in the facility. Uh, we reduced our capacity by 50%. We spaced everybody out, out to three meters, which seemed to do a really good job of the original wave. And uh, we're trying to stick with the same measures to, to do it for this wave too. Do people pay attention? Like your customers, your clients, are they careful? I think our, our customers have been fantastic. I mean, they follow the orders as well as anybody could be expected to follow them. I mean, they've done whatever they've had to do to stay active and stay healthy through this pandemic. What would you like to see happen here? What, what, how would you think this should be dealt with by public health officials? Well, it's, it's a big question. I mean, I, I really don't, don't have, know the, the answer to that, but I think it's 
one thing in this last wave that's been very hard and frustrating for a lot of my friends to to deal with is uh, the fact that sports is allowed to be open and gyms aren't. I think the definition making them different and telling some businesses to close and that you can't be open and then other businesses can be open. That's a that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to deal with. Was there any consultation, any notice given? No. I mean, uh, we have a, an industry group called the FIC, which usually gets some some notification ahead of time. And this one, there was there was no notification. It just got dropped on us December 22nd. It was December 23rd. You got to close your doors. So you're saying you're going to open under the 50% rule because you're a boxing facility? Yeah, we opened. We opened yesterday. Yep. Okay. And how does that go over with people, though? Do some people say, hey, what are you doing? I mean, to be honest with you, I think this, I think in all the other orders that I've gone gone through is that we have really worked hard and followed the orders. And, and again, we're following the provincial health order on this one. But, I mean, it's it's, it's a tough one to really understand why, why some facilities should be open and some should be closed. But, I mean, our clients have overwhelmingly been really excited and and happy that we were able to open and, and allow them some outlet. Right. Okay. So then how do you manage that though? If it's only 50% capacity or some people just have to wait to come in. So we have an online booking system. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's fairly easy to manage. It's only, it just reduce the capacity by 50%. And then uh, if it's full, it's, it's full. So it's, they have to pre-book to come in. So it's not like you're someone's at the door saying, no, you can't come in or right. you can come in, you know? So, Kevin, it sounds like your business is hanging in there. How how much longer can it hang in there under these kinds of circumstances? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, it's uh, we haven't been able to hang in here because we have a lot of, we've been established for 17 years. So we have a lot of uh, long-term oil members that have really, uh, stepped up to the plate and kept their membership through all the lockdowns and went online with us and and did all that. But it's it's not easy. This is almost two years, so it's and I'm also I'm right in the downtown core. So most of our business comes from the office towers being full. So it's uh, we're hanging in there, but it's I'm not sure how much longer. All right, Kevin. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much to me. That's Kevin Reynolds. He's the owner of Contenders Boxing Studio. So technically they can reopen and they have under the 50% capacity rule because it's a sport, uh, which some, you know, if a sporting facility, sporting teams, there's that 50% capacity rule, which is different from uh, gyms, I guess, if you're just going to go and work out without having like classes and trainers and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's complicated, as you can tell. And people are angry because they feel exercise is so necessary. Have a listen to this buzz line that we got from someone. Hey, Timmy, uh, regarding gyms and closing for COVID, uh, I was taken back and it uh, made me turn a little bit more negative. I've done everything for COVID. I've gotten all three shots. It was a two-shot booster. I followed all the rules. Uh, when they last closed the gyms, I thought it stopped making sense. Um, at the gym I go to, it's kind of small. Everybody right, wipes the equipment before and after. Uh, it's all social distancing, and, uh, I mean, you're being healthy. So why close the gyms? Uh, I can understand fitness classes or maybe do social distancing, spread them out, have inspectors go by and check, but closing the gyms soured it for me. 
See, that's exactly what we're talking about right there. Thank you so much for your call because I feel like that is very true. Gyms have gone above and beyond and, you know, making sure things are are working properly and sanitizing and all of that. And that gentleman made many good points there. Like, yeah, fitness classes, absolutely close those down. But if, if gyms can operate under even 50% capacity rules, spacing people out, wiping things down, Shouldn't we allow to people to maybe, you know, get some exercise in somehow? It's a, it's a frustrating situation. Absolutely. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com or you can call our buzzling like that gentleman did, 604-331-2899. Also, one of the most interesting things I also heard yesterday from the Dr. Henry, Dr. Henry press conference is the warning to businesses out there. She said, employees are going to have to take sick days. So be prepared, she said, to run your business with fewer employees. Now, people may have been expecting to hear more about potential restrictions. Instead, it sounds like BC is staying the course. And what health officials are asking is that you, me, all of us, that we be more vigilant on our own without necessarily being forced to with public health orders. And so she's saying for businesses, that means, yes, you're going to have to run things. We're not going to close you down, except for, you know, the gyms and what we're talking about there. We're not going to close you down like retail and restaurants and that kind of thing. But we need you to be more vigilant and be, well, good about running things and letting employees take a day off sick. They're going to need to do that to try to prevent continual spread here. In fact, the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers has said that their members are reporting a 20% shortage in employee hours over the holiday period, and they think that number is going up, and that is because of sick days, people not working because they're not feeling well, and that is something that grocery stores are dealing with. All employees, it sounds like, are going to have to deal with that situation. Let me know if that's happening in your workplace. Are more people calling in sick? Are you having to kind of make up for that? Is a business trying to stay open? You can tell us your story, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk this morning about looking after your health, whether it's your mental health or your physical health. Let's face it, this pandemic has really taken a toll on a lot of us when it comes to making sure that we are looking after ourselves. And that's why earlier this week, the story of Brian Hamilton and the Vancouver Canucks was so important, right? If someone hadn't pointed that mole out to him, it would have meant serious problems, skin cancer that would have progressed in a scary fashion in just a few years. And that's also why this next story is so important, one that really resonated with me personally. Joining us now is Corinne Kirkpatrick, who's a BC Liberal MLA for West Vancouver Capilano. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thanks, Simi. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I really want to hear your story. Now, I read all about this, but I think we should let everybody know. Corinne, what have you been dealing with? You've had a breast cancer diagnosis recently, haven't you? Yeah, I did. Um, So uh, in October, I went and got my regular mammogram. And I will say I went uh, more uh, diligently than I normally would have gone. So uh, I got in there very quickly after I got my letter. Um, And then on November 10th, I got uh, a diagnosis of breast cancer. I was completely shocked. It doesn't run in our family. I felt fine. And I would have, other than going for that mammogram, would have had absolutely no reason to think that I needed to go and get anything done. So from that point, uh, I've now become the best Googler in terms of what is cancer, what does it mean to me, um, and then I've just experienced some phenomenal support from a number of doctors on the North Shore and 
and have my, uh, my cancer surgery on uh, December 20th. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are doing well on this. But Corinne, I thought this was a really valuable lesson for a lot of us out there. Because when I was reading about you talking about this yesterday on social media, I realized I had forgotten about my letter, <laughs> which arrives every two years. And you know what? It had arrived just before Christmas. And I had kind of put it on a pile to deal with after Christmas. And I had completely forgotten about it until I saw your tweets yesterday. So I made that appointment and you know what? If you hadn't written that, I wouldn't have made that appointment. I would have completely forgotten all about it. Well, that makes me, uh, that makes it all worth it. I wasn't sure if I wanted to share, uh, you know, it's very personal when you go through something like this, but I, I just kept thinking, you know, people have to, you know, you understand the premier has gone through this. Um, uh, you know, one of my colleagues, Amon Singh, has gone through this and he came out talking about the importance of actually getting these checkups when you have the opportunity to. So I, I smiled when I saw your response to, uh, uh, to my uh, <laughs> uh, post because I thought, well, there's so many women like us, Simi, who yeah. we're busy and we've got, and it's, you know, well, I'll go to the dentist later. I don't need to do that now. And you get these notes. And I, I think there's also this sense that it's not me. It's not going to happen to me. This is something that happens to other people. I don't need to worry about it. Or if I don't know, if I don't go and I don't know, then I don't have to deal with it. And I think that's a really dangerous place to be because, we, you know, mammograms are horrible. I mean, nobody likes to go and get one. Um, but if we go into denial that it's not something that we need or we can put it off till later, uh, I am so, so lucky if I had not gone when I got that letter, the cancer that they caught with me, it's an invasive, lo- invasive lobular carcinoma, it could have grown. And if, if I didn't know for six months or a year that, mm-hmm. that I have that, uh, we'd be having a really different conversation right now. Oh, man. Yes, thank you. So that's why I wanted to have you on this morning, so I could say thank <laughs> you for the reminder. Uh, but, but also, Corinne, do you think a lot of that is happening right now with the pandemic? We have so many other worries going on. I'm not sure people are looking after themselves. It's interesting you say that to me because it, the, the reason that I was really motivated to do this because I, I am a bit of a procrastinator sometimes is uh, with all the health issues and going through this pandemic, I made a commitment to myself that self-care was really important. I mean, I've done everything I can to to be healthy with the context of the pandemic and not getting COVID. But I said to myself the beginning of last year is I I need to do everything else I can do to to keep, you know, to keep my health because I'm a mom. I've got people around me that rely on me. So for me, it had the opposite effect. I think if we weren't in this very um, trying time with COVID, I may not have been as quick to make that phone call. But I think that this, uh, you know, some people have thrown up their hands and said, well, <laughs> there's so much going on. Maybe this isn't a priority right now. So hopefully they'll rethink that. And hopefully, yes, they will. So just tell me, what is your prognosis and what more, what further treatment do you have? Well, I, I you know, it's funny to talk about how being lucky with cancer. I'm so lucky. I was diagnosed with a very small invasive lobular carcinoma, and I also and I, I have no medical training, so just bear with me with what I've learned here. Um, is uh, it's not a cancer that could be found during a physical examination. I had just been to my doctor for a full physical a couple of months prior to this, 
And it wasn't a lump. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. It was, there was no way to have observed this without having a mammogram. So I just want to say how important that is. Um, so it's stage one. Uh, it was removed um, uh, on December 20th. The pathology that came back after, uh, which just came back a couple days ago, said that there's no other sign that it has spread everywhere. It was very tiny, and they got it very, very quickly. So aside from being a little uncomfortable from the surgery, I may need to have radiation. At this point, I won't know for a couple more weeks until I see the next oncologist. Right. But, you know, Corinne, it, it sounds like, you know what, they caught it in time. So I'm so glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Thank you for that very valuable reminder this morning. Thank you. And I'm so glad you made your appointment. I did. Good luck with that, Simeon. <laughs> thanks, thank thanks for talking to me. That's okay. Corinne Kirkpatrick, who's a BC Liberal MLA for West Vancouver, Capilano, also the opposition critic for the Ministry of Children and Families and Child Care, talking about her mammogram. She talked about this online yesterday, and I happened to see it, and thank goodness I did. Because I had also, I had buried my reminder about going for my checkup too, that you get it every two years, it comes, you're supposed to make an appointment and go online. It came right before Christmas, I stuck it in a pile of papers. And when I went digging for it yesterday, after seeing Corinne's tweet, I found it. And you know what, I never would, I would have forgotten completely about it if I hadn't seen that. So yes, I now have my appointment. Good reminder out there for people to make sure that we stay proactive uh, with the things that we need to do to look after our health these days. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this cold weather is going to continue for the next couple of days. We have a winter storm watch in effect for the next 24 hours. Not so much during the day today, as we heard from Mark Madriga earlier, but definitely overnight into the early hours. He said 15 to 20 centimeters of more snow falling in the metro Vancouver area. Now that is tough, not just tough for us as people who are out and about trying to do stuff, but wildlife. I mean, wildlife all over the province is impacted by the first extreme heat that we had this summer, now the extreme cold that we are seeing here. According to the Wildlife Rescue Association, though, this winter season has been particularly tough on birds. Joining us now to talk about that is Linda Baker, who's a co-executive director at Wildlife Rescue. Linda, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. What kind of impacts are we seeing on birds? Yeah, we've seen uh, lots of different birds with um, just really, really struggling with the uh, cold temperature and the snow dump. So we're seeing hypothermia, low blood sugar, uh, leading to lethargic behavior, uh, emaciation, and then they are prone to other injuries or being picked up by cats or other predators. Are there certain types of birds that are more at risk right now? Well, right now we're seeing a lot of hummingbirds coming in. Uh, they need a lot of food uh, to maintain their metabolism. They have a very high metabolism. Um, <clears throat> and uh, they rely on hummingbird feeders right now uh, that people have put up in their yard. Uh, however, they tend to freeze over. So, um, yeah, they are struggling to find food. I have seen a lot of chatter about this on social yeah. media, about people talking about their hummingbird feeders. What should people do, Linda? So there's three things uh, you need to consider when you have hummingbird feeders up um, because you really need to commit. <laughs> uh, you need to keep them clean, uh, prevent them from freezing, 
and uh, provide the right uh, sugar water in them. So um, the freezing is a big problem right now because they sometimes they can freeze within a couple of hours. So people have been very creative uh, how to prevent that. Like you can have two uh, hummingbird feeders and then switch them out every couple of hours. Um, or uh, there are hummingbird feeder heaters on the market. Also, although really? I, I think, yeah, <laughs> I think they're all sold out now. <laughs> Um, but people have been creative with putting a, a light on, shining onto the feeder that, uh, you know, an, an old-fashioned light that actually gives off a little bit of heat, old-fashioned um, Christmas lights strung around them or sort of insulate them. Uh, if you hang them closer to your house, a little bit sheltered, that might prevent uh, freezing as well. So there's lots of, um, you know, creative ideas out there. Um this so that's is, the freezing. Right. This preventing. is big yeah. business, though, isn't it? Because just if you just Google the words hummingbird feeder, Linda, there, there yeah. are a lot of products out there to help you with this. Yeah, yeah. So that's excellent. Uh, the more, the better. Uh, if, they, if they work, that's great. Okay. So what other types of birds, though, might be having issues right now? Yeah, we're seeing um, a variety of songbirds. Uh, with the snow, we always see certain species like uh, red-breasted sapsuckers, uh, very thrushes. They tend to, I, I think, live more a little bit higher up, and then they come down into the cities when the snow falls, um, and they're not used to you know, a different environment. They're hitting windows a lot. So those types of animals we see a lot this time of year. Is there anything we can do to help those types of birds? Um, well, you can consider feeding them. Uh, you have to consult with your local bird uh, feeder store in the area. Um, although they are, um, you know, adapted to this climate, uh, they do struggle with, with these long periods of sub-zero uh, conditions. Um, also, not uh, having your cats outdoors might help because sometimes they do go to the ground uh, when they're not feeling well. So uh, prevent your cats snapping them up and uh, and observe. Like if you think uh, a bird is on the ground or not looking well, give us a call. Go on our website. There's lots of information there as well, what you can do. Okay. So what is your website then? Just so people can check that out. That's wildliferescue.ca wildliferescue.ca. All right, we'll direct people there. Linda, thank you. Great. Yeah, you're welcome. Linda Baker is the co-executive director at Wildlife Rescue talking about the impact that this cold situation has had on birds. The hummingbird feeder, I don't know what happened in the last year or two. Maybe this is also a pandemic thing. I don't know. You tell me. But I know so many people who are deeply into this now. Hummingbird feeders, hummingbird feeder heaters, as Linda just pointed out. I just quickly took a look at that online. And there's a huge number of products available to help you keep the hummingbirds fed in your yard. This is incredibly popular. Tell me about yours, what you're doing with your hummingbird feeders right now. The cold situation has made it quite difficult. How are you adapting to it? How are you making sure the hummingbirds are getting fed in your yard? Simi at cknw.com would love to hear more about this. This is Mornings with Simi. Once again, it is back to adapting to restrictions at long-term care homes in BC. That is not an easy thing for them to do, especially since for so many residents of long-term care homes, already the pandemic has caused isolation problems that they were probably just starting to get over. 
So what is going on? How is this being dealt with? Joining us now is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. This latest, these latest orders must have been very difficult. Uh, very difficult. Uh, we only learned uh, Friday morning, uh, literally 10 minutes after we finished our call with the Ministry of Health, in which um, you know this news was uh, not available. And uh, all of a sudden, on a holiday-long weekend, uh, families uh, and operators had to pivot and change the rules once again, and it created... Tremendous anxiety on the on the part of families, residents, uh, and operators. And, you know, we were trying to manage that as much as possible through various channels, including social media. And then only to find out, of course, yesterday that uh, social visits will be reinstated on a limited basis uh, once rapid tests come in. So, again, pivoting once again. It's It's been very difficult, as you can imagine. The last couple of years have been tremendously hard on families and residents and operators. So this uh, adds to that, and we're just hopeful that Omicron will um, will fall as quickly as it rose, and we can get back to some semblance of normalcy. How difficult is it, or what have you heard from some of the residents of long-term care, Terry? I mean, they, you know, having visitors is essential for their mental health, and and now all of a sudden that's kind of being taken away. Yeah, it's devastating. Really, uh, we hear more from family members, of course. Um, that have been cut off from their loved ones or are waiting to see if they qualify to be an essential visitor. And that's the problem to me is that, you know, we have these definitions and, and you have to abide by these definitions, but they can be interpreted differently by different operators, even by different health authorities. And they have to be accompanied by plans uh, and, you know, a, a fairly high level of bureaucracy to manage this. So it, it creates um, uh, anxiety on the part of families, of course, and, and for residents that have been cut off from their families off and on for the last two years, is, is, it's just something that they have difficulty dealing with, especially if they're dealing with any kind of dementia or um, Alzheimer's. They don't understand why all of a sudden they're not seeing their loved ones uh, on a daily basis. Oh, that'd be so difficult. So Dr. Henry said yesterday they're trying to find a way to include some social, like allow one social visitor per resident to come back. What does that mean? How would that work? Well, uh, this is what we were under in the fall where we had one essential visitor and one designated social visitor uh, at a time uh, for a resident. Uh, but you know, the visitors must be fully vaccinated. Uh, they would undergo the normal screening uh, plus rapid testing once the uh, homes have their supply of rapid tests. But for some reason, the, the government is uh, sending out or waiting for a supply of new rapid tests to send out to care homes, which are in limited supply at the moment, uh, whereas we have, you know, um, hundreds of thousands, if not a million, of the pan bio tests sitting in a warehouse in Vancouver that are not being utilized. And we keep hearing different reasons why they're not being utilized. But it does seem that we could have had these tests ready to go and uh, and restarted social visits earlier. Do you feel that it wasn't enough of a priority? I don't know if it's a priority. I think there's a you know I think there's a high level of concern about residents and families in long term care, uh, but unfortunately there is very little communication between the public health officer and the seniors care sector and. You know, we have weekly meetings with the Ministry of Health, but it's not um, it's not uh, regularly that we have someone from the provincial health officer in those meetings. 
And uh, when they are there, they often uh, don't uh, have the ability to make decisions or even have the relevant information that operators and families need. So the, the breakdown in communications has been a, a, a theme since uh, the beginning of, of COVID-19. And uh, it's unfortunate because so many families are impacted by that. And Terry, what has been the impact, though, of Omicron on long-term care homes? Well, we currently have 19 outbreaks around the province, most of which are in Fraser Health that has 13 uh, but we have uh, quite a few uh, other homes on uh, what we call enhanced monitoring or enhanced surveillance where there's, you know, just one or two cases and uh, mostly within staff. The vaccination, the, the booster vaccination made a huge difference. And, um, you know, that was supposed to be rolled out into December. But uh, fortunately, the government listened to uh, our sector and listened to the opposition that demanded it be moved up and was all done by the end of October. So that, I think, insulated residents of long-term care from the worst impacts of Omicron. And um, uh, it's now the staff that are affected. So really what we need is a a major effort to get staff their third boosters so that we can ensure that this doesn't uh, have the the impact that other waves of of, uh, the virus have had. Well, were staff at long-term care not part of the priority list to get those boosters? Not initially, uh, and even even once they were moved up uh, the priority list, they still have to make a, a you know a, 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 a appointment and and go through the process like like others. Whereas uh, previously, uh, we had health authorities on site vaccinating staff, you know, at, which was way more convenient, way more efficient and effective. And we've asked for that to happen again. And in, in very limited circumstances, that has happened at a home in Kamloops, for instance, IHA came on site because that home was so low staffed that they knew they had to protect the existing staff uh, from getting Omicron. So, you know, it, it, it should have been done all over the province to make sure that staff were not bringing that virus into the most vulnerable setting in the province. So what happens next, Terry, for the next week or two or a couple of weeks? What can family members expect at long-term care? Well, first of all, we really uh, hope they will be patient with the staff at long-term care who, as I mentioned, we're, we're suffering a critical staffing shortage. So everyone is run off their feet and uh, it takes time to uh, you know, communicate and respond to requests to be an essential visitor or the designated social visitor. It takes time to set up the systems to support that new visitation regime. So I'd ask that people be very patient, um, but uh, also that um, that they be very careful in the community to ensure that when they do get to see their loved one in care, they're not bringing the virus in with them uh, because, um, you know, that, that would be a tragedy. But by and large, that hasn't happened because families that do have loved ones in care are, are super careful out in the community already um, and have made sure they've got their boosters and they, you know, protect themselves from, uh, from getting infected. But it's a really a matter of patience and, uh, and uh, making sure that, um, that, that they communicate well with the home, uh, whether it's uh, operated by the health authority or a contracted provider. Everyone is doing their very best to make sure that their loved ones are, are looked after. So you would also like the province to help maybe define essential visitor to open that up a little bit more? Well, the definition is there, but I think, you know, we don't need to to be so prescriptive, Simi. Let's just say that everyone is entitled to a visitor uh, and let's not attach a huge bureaucracy to this. Rapid test everybody that's coming into the home, even rapid test the staff on a regular basis. Uh, And let's get staff their third uh, booster as quickly as possible. All right, Terry, thanks very much for your time.
Thank you, Simi. Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. If you've got a story about long-term care, you're trying to visit a loved one, what's been going on, let us know, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Some very big national news. Canada has reached a $40 billion, that's billion with a B, $40 billion agreement in principle to compensate First Nations children that were harmed by an underfunded child welfare system. You may remember this court case. It's been going on for a few years now. Lots of criticism of the government for fighting this for a long time. This deal will end a human rights challenge that was launched 14 years ago. So what does it involve? Well, the government is setting aside $20 billion for compensating Indigenous children and their family members, and another $20 billion is earmarked for funding the services for Indigenous children. This has been a major sore point in reconciliation efforts in this country. Joining us now to talk more about it is Cindy Blackstock, who's Executive Director of the Caring Society. Cindy, thank you for being back with us. Thank you for having me. What do you think of this agreement? Well, um, right now it's words on paper, and we need to land it for real change for children. But it sets out a plan for the federal government to comply with existing legal orders to compensate the victims of its chronic underfunding of First Nations children's services that really made it almost impossible for families to recover from the trauma residential schools. And then it also sets forward two of the most important pieces. One is to stop the discrimination And then the other is to fix the government so that it doesn't do this to another generation of children. Can you explain to people, Cindy, like how did we get to this point? What was going on? Right. Well, a lot of people don't know that the federal government funds public services on reserve. And ever since the country was founded, it's provided far less funding for First Nations people for public services, basics like water, like uh, children's services, education, everything is underfunded compared to others. And what that has done is that inequality is piled up on the hopes and dreams of children. And it's resulted in more children being in child welfare care than at the height of residential schools. Now, we had worked with the government over 20 years ago, the Assembly of First Nations and the Caring Society. And what we showed is that that at that time, the federal government was giving First Nations kids 70 cents on the dollar for family supports compared to other kids. The government agreed with that finding, but they never implemented it. Back then, had they taken action, it would have been hundreds of millions of dollars to fix the problem, and many children's lives and their childhoods would have been saved. But Canada didn't do it. So in 2007, we filed a human rights complaint against Canada that they again fought tooth and nail on technicalities. But the tribunal found them to be responsible for the discrimination in 2016. The government came out and welcomed the decision and then didn't implement that. So we've had 21 non-compliance orders since that. And it was really that and the public pressure that I think really created a pivot point for the government that realized that it couldn't continue to resist. So in a nutshell then, Cindy, what was happening is the government was providing, for every dollar they were providing for other Canadian children in care, for Indigenous children in care, they were only providing 70 cents. That's right. And in British Columbia, some of the deepest inequalities existed there. We had First Nations child and family service providers that hadn't seen an increase in the monies to keep families together in over 28 years. So I guess the question then for this, Cindy, is, is this, is this the beginning of the end of this? Is this, going, is this agreement going to mean big changes? Well, that's a, that's what we hope, uh, but uh, we need to see the government actually take the action. 
I always measure change at the level of children and families. And the big date we all need to be watching for is April 1st, when the federal government is supposed to provide more funding for family supports to help the families recover from the trauma residential schools and keep their kids at home. And the other piece is on around post-majority services. Right now, youth in care, when they're 18, they're often just, you know, left out there on their own without any support. And this needs to change. And so those supports will be offered until they're 26 years of age. Okay, so what is the timeline like for implementation and getting this money out? Right, so April 1st is when that money goes out the door. And uh, we should also see immediate monies for buildings to provide those services. And many communities have housing crises, as you know. And then over the summer and fall, we need to work with communities to identify any other gaps that may exist and fill those. But one of the key pieces we need to keep in mind is this inequality affects child welfare and other services uh, under Jordan's principle, so education and social supports. But it doesn't deal with things like water and housing. And what we really need to do is demand that the government cost out all of the inequalities in these public services and fix these problems. Because if they don't fix them, we're going to see another type of class action 20 years down the line in the hundreds of billions of dollars when the problem could be fixed and people's lives could be better um, right right now. Right. That's what I'm wondering, Cindy. Then does this agreement mean recognition from the government and a willingness to definitely do things differently? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that that, uh, was encouraging to me is up until at least October, the federal government was saying, well, you know, there is no discrimination happening. It's all historic, all a dark chapter. But they finally started to admit that the discrimination is going on on their watch and that they need to fix that discrimination. And they also need to fix themselves so that they do not hurt another generation of kids. We never in this country had a generation of First Nations kids who hasn't been hurt severely by the federal government, first by residential schools, the 60 scoop, and now this. And it's important for listeners to know that many of the children who are victims here are still children. We're talking five-year-olds. We're talking eight-year-olds. That is who has been hurt by this type of discrimination. Are you hopeful then? It sounds like you're a little bit hopeful. I am a little bit hopeful. I always am an optimist. I like to listen to positive words. <laughs> yeah. But I've also I've also been around a long time. And I know that uh, too often there's too much distance between what government says and what government does. So I will not be exhaling and I will not uh, encourage the public to not keep an eye on these guys until they actually do this stuff. All right, we'll see what happens. Cindy, thank you for talking to us about it today. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy New Year. And the same to you. That's Cindy Blackstock, Executive Director of the Caring Society, talking about this historic agreement that has been reached. It's an agreement in principle. It's $40 billion to compensate First Nations children who were harmed by an underfunded child welfare system. And then it earmarks $20 billion for compensation, $20 billion for funding the services for Indigenous kids at the same level that the services are funded for for other Canadian children. Cindy says she's an optimist, but we'll see what happens. There's more to come on that for sure.